um, with our biweekly tanky group therapy session. I think this is number eight. Um, and we have Sina, Alex, John, Nora, and this time we have an actual therapist. So we have Lara uh, Shihai joining us. Um, and instead of me just giving everybody 10 minutes to go around, we'll actually let Lara uh, facilitate the whole hour long session. So uh, I want to hear Lara's 10 minutes as well. Like, yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Okay. Good. So Lara, I'm going to turn it over to you. You have the floor. Sure. Thanks folks for having me. Well, I think like I'm coming in as a guest to your space. And so that would be the same thing is that sometimes as therapists, we come in, you know, we get asked to be consultants. And so I'm going to treat this space like that. And and you all have a, a vibe and a sort of communal process going. So part of what I'll be doing today is listening in. And I have the benefit of coming in also not as fully part of the process. So I'll be tracking several things at once, maybe themes that come through or various, um, you know, uh, thoughts or threads, and then can reflect back and and hopefully have you all jump in and, and, and do what you've already been doing. You know, that's part of the therapist thing is that you all do the stuff. I just get to hold some of it for you <laughs> today. So um, I heard you say that you do your check-in. So maybe we can just start there. Uh, maybe I'll start. Um, I've been thinking about a few things. One one thing is like, I I was I've, I've been struck by like, I've I've read veterans of war uh, testimonies, and one of the things they say, and it's a little bit like characters in Catch Twenty Two say this by Joseph Heller. Like, one thing that you're you can't believe is that somebody's actually shooting you and trying to kill you. Like there's just, you're, even though you're on a battlefield, it's like, I can't believe this person's shooting at me. Like, and Yosarian says that over and over. And I've had this feeling where I just can't believe how much, like we're all in the media or in academia, the academy, and we have some access to senior leadership of these institutions, or we watch them work, or we watch, the governments of our country's work. And it's just, I can't believe how much they hate us. I can't believe how much they hate us, how much they're willing to lie to us, how much contempt they have for us. And it just, that's been just like watching the statements, the, the way the ceasefire vote worked and then the way they tried to reappropriate the word ceasefire now. So they're like, yeah, we're Canada's like, we're for a ceasefire, but what we meant by being for a ceasefire is Israel can do whatever they want and kill as many people as they want. And then whenever they stop, that's what we'll call a ceasefire. And that's what we're in favor of. And so that's like one of the feelings that I've been having is just this feeling like, wow, like we are, we are ruled by such heartless people who are so, so eager to lie about everything. And they just think, were that stupid that they just will lie to us, like just lie to our faces constantly. Uh, and and then like the other thing I have, the other feeling I have is like, when I think about like a grieving process where somebody dies and then you go through this whole grieving process for this person, but like 
you can't do that here because every day there's 500 more or a thousand more people that are being killed and there's some new atrocity that's happening and so like you can't even keep track you can't even keep track in your mind of what happened or what happened when and it's just like this overload of like you're human I think we have capacities for grieving and getting over things but I don't think this type of occurrence is it falls within our our human ability to handle it so I don't know in terms of like what I've been doing I have different weeks this week I've been doing just the thing where I turn everything off and I try to work as much as possible and then if I stop I start feeling really bad so I just try to work again um so it's just like it's as if like a volume of words that I write or a volume of content that I can put out can somehow influence this outcome like I'm just not writing enough or I'm just I haven't made enough videos or something so those are my feelings thanks Justin I just sort of want to reflect back a, a thread that I'm hearing before we go on to whoever wants to go next is there's a way in which you're at the point where you're trying to organize all the things internally and externally, right? But one of the things you're saying that runs across both these stopping points, right? Both these points of pause that you have is that there's something unmetabolizable about what is happening. And that can feel very overwhelming, but there's also a sense of clarity that I'm hearing you sort of articulate, right? That there's something grounding about us not being able to metabolize, right? And I, I kind of want to just have that float <laughs> over the time that we're together about what does it mean to not be able to metabolize? And what does that mean in terms of our ability also to keep going, right? That there are some things that should not be metabolizable and, and us able to kind of take in and then just go on our daily lives. I guess I can go. I, I, I think I'm this, I'm at this point where, uh, there I I'm, I'm, I'm so angry. I'm like, I'm, I'm just kind of in this constant, like frothing pit of rage um and it's actually like i don't know it kind of it feels like i i'm in almost like a numb stage of that rage which is something that i, I don't think i've ever felt before maybe this acutely or like this um for this lengthy amount of time before um and i still like I, I was talking to my own personal therapist about this. Like I still haven't uh, sat down and cried yet. Um, and, you know, I'm like joking about it with her. I'm like, uh, you know, it's probably because I'm on enough Zoloft to like sedate an elephant at this point. But like, but really like, I think it's just like this, this total wall of rage and like, and also like what Justin was saying, like disbelief that this is continuing to happen and that nobody is 
is stopping this. And like, you know, the like we had uh, Craig Mulkyber, who was a, a UN official on the EI live stream yesterday. And, and he was talking, you know, he was basically just kind of, you know, peeling apart the layers of like the, the, the levels of um, like calculated uh, in, intended failure of the UN as a systemic body to step in and stop this. Um, and how it's, you know, the, like, you know, these, these institutions are just meaningless at this point. And, and so, you know, it just kind of like, um, that, I mean, I, I know that we know that already, but to like hear it in this kind of more like official, you know, insider capacity, um, I, I don't, I, I don't know, like I couldn't, um, I still, I still am having a really hard time processing that. And I think it's just like the level of like, yeah, constant gaslighting, constant lying, constant vitriol. Um, and, and, and like the, 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 the way that Palestinians are being so dehumanized and constantly and like, I'm just, I, I don't, yeah, I, I just feel like it's, um, it's so, it's so much, it's so much all at once and there's, there's no break. And then, and then, uh, yeah. And, and, and there's no time to grieve and like grieving almost seems like a, um, like a, a privilege at this point. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. There's, there's just, um, there's a way in which I feel like I'm, I'm losing a lot of myself. Um, like the ways that I used to be and the, you know, like, um, the, my own perception of myself as like, you know, very, I'm empathetic and I'm humanist and I'm compassionate and like all of that is maybe still true, but it's being, overshadowed by how much hatred and anger I feel um, toward Israel, obviously, and toward Americans and the, and, and the system as a whole. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know how I'm, who I'm going to be after this. Um, and so it's like, just kind of like destabilizing in many different <laughs> ways I feel. Um, and I, you know, I still feel like I, I want to be able to sit down and have a good cry about it. Um, but, but I, I, there's, you know, it's either like chemically, I can't do that yet, or just there's too much rage to, to, to feel sad, which, you know, they're two sides of the same coin, but it's, but it's just this very like, it's a very strange kind of like middle middle path that I'm on between grief and rage, I guess. Yeah. yeah. There's something really important about what you're articulating around also that I sort of want to throw out for us to, to chew on a little bit about how 
whether it's grief, as Justin was saying, or you said that as well, but you're talking about rage, right? And about how rage and hatred are coded in a very specific way. And so that sort of idea that somehow you're different because you're feeling this, right? It's just for us also to think about that in the middle of this, even as we're clear on where that's, what the source is, that there's something about the world we live in and these structures that also have us go, you know, that th these things get lodged inside of us around a moralism, right? Mm -hmm. About what, a, what rage means, what not being able to grieve. But what I'm hearing is there's very real processes that are suspended. Just as we see, right? And this might be the parallel when we commute between the individual and the structural, just as we see certain things that we might've relied on being suspended, right? Affectively, you all are also describing a sort of suspension that's happening. And so part of the process is also what are the codes and how do we sort of unlearn them and decodify certain things like rage, like grief, and the expectations we have about what that looks like, yeah. right? Um, there's something really important about marking what is actually different. And I hear you start to do that, both of you, and I'd be interested in in the others too, about there is a difference, whether that's the unvarnished rage that you're feeling that, that you said not quite sustained in this way as before, or Justin, you saying, you know, I can't believe they hate us this much, right? Like there's, there's a marking of a difference here. And that, that feels useful psychically and emotionally too. Mm. Yeah. Who's next, Alex? <laughs> um, I think those are two really, the, the two things that you just mentioned, Laura, really, I think, got to me to um, the, the idea of like suspension and the idea of marking. Um, like I've, I've interviewed folks who whose loved ones were disappeared by the Mexican state, right? And and they always talk about that, how it's, um, they, they live in a state of like suspended animation almost, right? Because the very uh, tactic or goal of that type of terror is to en enact that, right? To, to that, to force the survivors to live through uncertainty um, for decades. And um, that idea of suspension, right? Like time stops moving to a certain extent or, uh, is, is something that I've been feeling the last, what are we, 70 plus days now? Um, that, that there is, there's certain things I do ritually now that I didn't do before, right? Like um, I probably spend way too much time on social media, but there's certain accounts that I, that I follow now just to, um, it's like watching the EI live stream, right? To, to give me a little bit of hope and not just to focus on the, the horrific um, violence and terror that we're witnessing day in, day out, and then feeling helpless in terms of not being able to do anything about it. Um, so it's weird. So it's it's a it's a it's an, a sense of suspension, but also trying to set new ways to like organize that suspension, and 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 what I read, what I write, um, the same temptation that that Justin described. Where I just throw myself into my own research that has almost nothing to do with what's going on. Um, it's a very real temptation, or just um, I'm on research leave this year, which has been really great uh, on the one hand. And on the other hand, it's like, uh, it's also really 
isolating to a certain extent, which is probably a good thing, because if I was on campus, I'd be yelling at colleagues all the time. And that's probably not good for my job prospects, but our career stability. Um, so yeah, these like rituals that, that I, the, the, the way I schedule my time um, is different now. Um, and the idea of marking also is like intellectually as a historian, like I know like what these monsters, like who these monsters are. Like I know who they are. I know what they think. I know what they do. But then it's another thing to just watch it and to like live through it and to uh, have a very, like I want to break stuff when I see John Kirby. Like I really want to like smash something. I mean, I, yeah, I'll leave it there. Uh, it's just like, you know, this, that, that Gramsci quote about living in a time of monsters kept getting thrown around here in the US when the, the orange man won the election. But no, like this is like the time of monsters, right? Like this is actually like a, a horrific time where all masks are off and, and we see the unvarnished lies, um, the horrific uh, half-assed attempts to justify the unjustifiable. And then we receive that and we feel powerless. Um, I think that's really, for me, it's really difficult to deal with um, that, that idea. Okay, we see the monsters, we see what they're doing what's next right and I, and for me like obviously beyond my own family and 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 my kids it's these like parasocial relationships like with you all who i've never met in person but i like feel like you know we've created a, a very cool sustaining and communal network um which has been really helpful um this the other thing too that stands out for me um is well, two things, and I'll leave it at that. One is like seeing that the violence exercise against children really gets to me because I have two kids, I guess. And um, and to see like a video I watched earlier, I don't know, yesterday or Friday of a, of a essentially a parent holding a kid out who's like bleeding out and not being able to do anything about it. And that like just, man, like I can't even, it's really difficult for me to put into words like what I'm feeling um, when I when I watch that video. And, and I feel like I have to watch it, right? Because I feel that's the very least we can do. Um, but then it also creates a certain, um, like a link, right? Because I have kids and, and, and I think about what I would do if I were in that situation. Um, and that just intensifies the, this, this, this horrific experience for me. And I'll end with the idea of, that I already kind of mentioned, right? About what solidarity constitutes at this moment. Um, one of the discussions I saw online this week was somebody tweeting something like, you know, if you're not an Arab, or an Israeli, and you really care about this topic, I get really suspicious of why you care about it. And that made me throw a couple of books around, I guess, as a typical nerd, right? Um, but like, what, like, so what is this solidarity, right? And th this reading this, this great piece by um, this journalist who lives not too far from here in Tucson, uh, Todd Miller, who, who interviewed uh, an, environmental, an environmentalist, a scientist from the West Bank, Dr. Uh, Masin Kumsiye, and he has this great quote where he's talking about Palestinians and Native Americans, and he's saying this as they're standing on the US-Mexico border under the shadow of an Elbit surveillance tower. And he says, look, I don't like the word solidarity. The struggle of, of Native Americans is my struggle as well. Um, so he's, at, he's asking us from, to think about moving beyond solidarity and to, to connect the dots about their struggle is our struggle. And I think that's thinking about that is one of the things that keeps me going and not just to get uh, bogged down in, in these horrific news and images that we're inundated with uh, day in, day out.
Yeah. You're doing something really beautiful with the, again, that what you mentioned is reorganizing both what suspension means and then also what, um, you know, marking, because we can think about if we're thinking about solidarity in the way that you just ended thinking of what you want to move against, that's a marking that also reifies maybe borders and atomization in a particular way. And you're saying, how do we reorganize, right? I, I do, again, we're back to sort of where Justin was sort of organizing for us. And I think that we can use that word in a lot of different ways, affectively, psychically, materially, right? How are we organizing these things? And, and just for us to sort of keep in mind, again, as we're even in this communal process, like something is being created in a communal process of group, of a group holding space, right? And that is the process of that's emerging of what do we reorganize, right? But the way we can mark that is also recognizing the psychological tools. What What is used to invade the province of the psyche, right? Despair being one of those things, right? Uh, separation, thinking that witnessing is an end point, right? That that's where it ends. That's, that is what also creates despair rather than you all coming together and this group coming together over and over and over again is also a working through. It's a working through and it, it maybe transforms that suspension as also refusal to succumb to conditions as they are, Right. So this process also reorganizes, again, what does solidarity mean? These questions, I suppose what I'm saying is that they're not empty, just we're not just speaking into the wind. We're actually actively creating something as you process, as you reorganize. And that, as we know from our politics, that's a, that's a constant, that's a constant thing. That's what struggle means. Can I say I'll one thing before, oh, go before, ahead, before you go, Sina, just when, when Alex, when you said somebody gets suspicious, if you're, if you're not an Arab or something, I just wanted to say, I just wanted to identify a feeling because I've seen a lot of those things and I just don't care. It's just, I have this really, really un unbelievably growing apathy of like people who are pro-genocide it's like I don't care what you think I don't care that you're suspicious I don't care at all I don't care about any of it I don't care what you call me I don't care what you say that I am I it just so yeah and and it's it's actually that's like one of the most freeing feelings that I have is like I realize how afraid I was of like the opinions of others and it's like realizing that these are not people that are fit to, you know, shine your shoes. Like I would, we should never, you know, I will never, I, I will never again care what people that are in favor of this genocide are suspicious of or care, you know, or yeah. think of me. Yeah, sorry. No, that is liberating. It is very liberating. Um, it's also scary because we're we're taught to you know to like want to obtain uh affirmation and um acceptance and and there's also this part sometimes when i run into that it, there's like this part of well if they could you like if like if i can if i can 
tell tell this person who whose opinions I shouldn't ever be chasing um, that I can say something that will get them to see me also as a human, and and therefore, you know, the the liberation struggle for Palestinians as something also worthy of having the correct opinion on, and being able to let that go is is also really liberating. <laughs> These people, yeah, they're not worth our time. And it's still, there's still like this very, like, um, very deep seated, uh, for me, maybe it's because I'm a woman. I, I don't, I don't know, but like, you know, constantly trying to like get, get people to, to like me and like my opinion on something and, and tell me that I'm right. Um, that's, I mean, maybe that's like a lifelong struggle to, to work on, but, um, but yeah, being able to let go of people whose opinions don't actually matter and who, because they are pro-genocide, because they are absolutely on the wrong side is, um, yeah, that's, it's freeing. Sorry, that was just me going off. I think the disidentification, right, is a part of this, is to disidentify whether that's, you know, as anti-capitalist or anti-imperialist or all of that, it is a daily process of disidentifying from the affective investment we have in things, in transactions, in, uh, in certain meaning, in certain codes, right? And, and you're right, there is all of you are going to have a particular individual approach to this that's shaped by your own histories, your own social location, your family, your upbringing, the social world. That is right. That is specific to you. And then also, if we're, again, commuting between the individual and the structural, there are certain logics that end up being followed. And that disidentification is what feels freeing. What I, what I will say, and then I think Sina had started to speak, is that... Um, you know, there's something really important about that, that letting go process, right? And what I often say, whether it's to my students or patients, is that the impulse is not the issue. The impulse to want people to see you as human, to believe you, to that is not what we're pathologizing here. That is the difference, I'll be tongue-in-cheek here, between you and a sociopath. <laughs> Right. Like the impulse is there because you're relational beings and we live in a world that is logic around that. Right. So is there a way for us to honor the impulse and then recognize materially what actually is getting in the way of that happening? Right. And that is a political analysis versus an affective one. Right. So I think that, again, the constant moving through these spaces is that's that's the practice part of it. That's that's the hard part. Yeah. So yeah, I I'll go here now. Um, because I feel I don't know. I've I've brought this up before, and this is like a constant problem for me. Um, if only because this is how I think, and this is how my training was. But in terms of like, I keep thinking about. Like the we're at a we're at an intersection, we're at like a historical point where the mimetic representation of reality has reached its pinnacle. Like there's no like like anti-imperialist 50 years ago would have to like read the newspaper, be like, wow, that's rough. 
like you know and like that that's how they got information like there was no like we didn't have a live stream of traumatizing images and like into directly fed into my brain like every morning i wake up and i pick up this little rectangle of trauma called my cell phone and i look at it and i learn things about the world that like i didn't need i didn't want to know like i didn't want to know this morning that like the israelis pushed some woman off a five like a five story building and like executed her that way like isis style like my brain my brain and like my political compass and myself and my position in the world like didn't necessarily need that right for like something right like but we're trained as like liberal subjects that like education information the news is something that develops you right as like a citizen subject right like and it's and to me i i find myself growing angrier and angrier at people in my life like close people in my life with their problems i was like what are you talking about like my mom Here's an example. My mom was having a meltdown because her tires were losing air pressure. And she's like texting me. And I was like, mom, what are you talking about? Just take it to the tire store that's 10 minutes away and get it fixed. Get it fixed. Like you don't need to do this. Your life is fine. It doesn't matter. You can go get a new tire. That's it. You don't have a problem here. Like stop caring. But you realize that like that nihilistic impulse of like dislocation of like, oh, your problems aren't problems. Like that doesn't help anyone. Right. Like that doesn't that doesn't that's not useful to anyone. Now, mind you, like most of the people in my life aren't as and I don't begrudge them for this. But like, it's true that like they're not as like they don't have it, the information hooked into their intravenous the way I do. And like, except that's why I come to you guys, because you understand this. But like the, the more and more I collect these kind of I call I think of them more as like Polaroids of like trauma that like come in the form of, of information of tweets or whatever, right? Like the more and more these collect in my brain, the more I find myself like incapable of caring about the problems of my own life. And like, how am I gonna pay my contractor? Like, how am I gonna deal with my car that's slowly dying? Like, who cares? Like, whatever. Like, what, what the fuck ever? Like, what does that even matter at the scale of what's going on? And there's a second thing that's happening though, which is like countervailing in that like, okay, we've been watching this genocide unfold, right? In this one corner of the world. But like, this is one, and I said this last time too, but, and it is, and it is something troubling me, but like, the, the idea that like political conflicts that are like growing and the crisis and like that are engulfing the world at a greater and greater degree. And I wonder that like, there is something unique to the Palestine question, partly because it's been, it has been this kind of hundred year old, like unfolding and all the intersections, all the like intersections of like settler colonialism, resource wars, racism, orientalism, they all meet there. They all meet in Gaza. Right, right now, all these historical forces. So like there is a scale of that, but then I think of like some 45 year old Ukrainian grunt recruited by these monsters in his government to go and be sacrificed on a battlefield for no fucking reason other than to continue the like the profits of some Western fucking ghouls and like weapons companies and like people like Ann Applebaum and like Michael McPhail like clapping along and this poor guy comes back if at all 
right? Like with one leg or no legs, right? And, and like, I just, I think of this and it's like, what's the number of soldiers so far? Like I heard 500K, like 500K. Like, like that number is so massive and partly has to do, and like the intimacy of the violence. And like, I follow a lot of Russian, Russian telegram channels and I see a lot of nihilism on the part of like Russian posters, for instance, who are like, oh, another oinker goes kaboom, you know, like, like stuff like that. And it's like, this, this guy was a fucking grunt. He was a conscript. He was just some dude, like a mechanic or something somewhere outside of Lvov or whatever. And now he's dead. And like the, and like the interactions between the reception of that like text of this guy's death, like I've seen a lot of death and I'm sure all of you have too, like intimate death. And the intimacy of like war violence today has never been this close. Like we think about like war photographers, everyone's a fucking war photographer today. Everybody on the battlefield, everybody around the battlefield, there are like drones that are like, so this is something that has been like, wow, we live, we really truly live in hell, a kind of informational hell where these horrible developments and amazing developments, I guess, in terms of like, in terms of mimesis, in terms of the representation of reality, like are in front of us and you can grasp for them. And what makes you extra bonkers is that the majority of the people around us, like the majority, and like, I'm not talking about like, and all of you, this includes you guys too, like the places where we live, like it just, it rolls over them like everything else. It just, it's, it's just like, whoops, like, that's bad. Yeah, like in the abstract, but like that to me is something that's like, how, how do we go forward? What do we do? And like, yeah, I guess these episodes and these shows and what we do is the only thing we can do. And, you know, when we write and we consume and, you know, like we produce our own kind of textualities that seek to kind of create a tiny, a kind, tiny kind of opposition to our professional media class that's supposedly, whose job is supposedly to cover this stuff. But like, yeah, we are, you know, this is something that is, this is something as I as I get deeper and deeper to this, like yeah, it's it's what it's what Nora says. Like, what am I gonna be like after this? Like, what what's gonna what am I what kind of weird nihilistic, like angry, impatient person am I gonna be after this? Because like I do not care about people's problems. Like your your problems are not problems. I don't have problems. You guys don't have problems. Like we don't have problems. We don't have, like I was thirsty the other day and I was like, damn man, I'm thirsty. Like I'm really I'm really dehydrated. Yeah, I'm sunburned. Like these are tiny. No, these are not. And then I thought about like, oh yeah, people in Gaza haven't had water for three months. And like, because like a genocidal war criminal called Yoav Galant decided like no food, no water, right? And like our, our monstrous leaders are like clapping along. I mean, yeah, it's, we live in, I, I said this before, like we live in fraudulent society. Like our political institutions, our political machinery, the global thing that like was erected in the post-World War II era that like all of us were taught in universities that's supposed to represent some sort of forward progressive step for you. Like these are all fake. These are all fake. This is all just kind of window dressing for like a jungle world that we we're seeing on like we're seeing like right now. So it's like my levels of like cynicism, I guess I wouldn't call it nihilism because I do care, but it is it is a weird dialectic because of the the locality of my life and the globality of my work of like that I I've taken on myself. It is something that is like a problem and I wonder like how much damage it's doing. Yeah, right on. And and also mom makes an appearance, right? Like it wouldn't be a psychoanalytic. 
I'm a psychologically oriented psychologist. So mom makes an appearance, not specific to Sina's mom. <laughs> Overrepresentation, right? Um, I just had to sort of infuse that. But I think what, again, the, the thread here is that what does it mean to decode, uncode, disidentify from these things, even as leftists, even as people who are committed to revolutionary futures and, and her, hopefully not just futures, fu present times, right? What are the things we end up internalizing about liberal humanist discourse and these ideas about the world that we live in that are governed by certain laws, that are governed by certain, you know, um, guardrails, right? And all of it are sort of, there's a process of undoing that's coming with that. But what I'm hearing also is a redoing. So I'm glad that you, I was going to offer you a tweak about the nihilism because nobody gets that heated up if they're truly nihilistic and like, what does it even matter, right? Um, that it seems like there's a very pressing recalibration that's happening. And I think there's something really important about, we know these on, a, on an everyday scale, something big happens in our life and we recalibrate what matters, what doesn't. And there's a sort of reorganizing of that. What, what is that, you know, to your questions, you know, what do we do when that's happening on an everyday basis? Every single day, there's something life changing that we're witnessing, right? That then recalibrates and that, and but perhaps that's the process of enacting the world that we want in in the present, not just as something far off, right? But in the meantime, what do we do with this this energy? What do we do with this internal world that we're we're again on a moment to every moment to moment organizing this? And and I, you know, I'm a shrink speaking. It doesn't sound like you are, you know, um, callous. It sounds like what separates me from the nihilism is that in that moment of quote unquote, not caring about people's problems, there's also political analysis that's, that's linked up with that. It's not just, I don't give a shit about you. It's here's the context in which that's happening. And what does that actually mean to create the conditions where the, the difference of problems is not this glaring, like we all knew that was a case, but how do we continue that also on the on this global scale, like you're saying? Yeah. John, I think you're this is my turn. Thanks for doing this with us, Laura. That's um it's great to see you all and uh good to hear that everyone is struggling as well. I try to keep my struggles um super isolated and compartmentalized. And um I think that's just a survival um tactic at this point. I think that in my brain, like I've been through a number of these cycles of war. And I think when it began, I knew that it was beginning. I mean, obviously, everybody knew that it was beginning. And it was, you know, how many days, how many days will you, you know, how many days can you do this one day over and over and over again, and not allow other things in life um, to, to interfere with that. And I've really fought hard for that. Um, and yeah, like the lies that were said, um, you know, that, the, that were constantly being gaslit. I, I, people keep telling me that what I tell them is hopeful. And that to me is, uh, on the surface of it, surprising because I feel like all that I'm doing is telling the truth. I'm just telling the truth in the face of all of these crazy lies and just 
like decades of preparation of the landscape, like dehumanization and um, defeatism, um, these things that are sort of almost built into our movements in a way, because we're used to losing a lot or, or that's what it looks like when you're in the moment, maybe you, you see the losses more. Um, but, I, and so I've tried to keep all those emotions separate and I've been, um, you know, it's been like, in some ways, I feel like my whole life has led to this moment and I have broken down. And when I broke down, I broke down over the idea that like, I want to win. I want the Palestinians to win, but I, like, I didn't want, I didn't mean for my friends to die in the process. I, I don't mean to be cheering something on that is so devastating, um, hu uh, like individuals, humanity, like individual lives are just, it's so devastating and catastrophic on such an enormous level. Um, but, but it's also a process of winning. Like we're watching um, like a ghettoized population that was told that they were erased. Like they were locked into this ghetto. They could never leave. Um, and people were talking about how this was the future of how to deal with indigenous populations that you can put them in this sort of quasi occupation, but you can say it's not occupied because you're on the outside of the ghetto. And we've watched that be completely uh, upended. You know, this uh, Israel's like Gaza's a laboratory for Israel, like this whole line of thought has all been flipped on its head. And now Israel's the laboratory for the resistance. And um, and we're watching like the sophistication and the ferocity and the courage of the resistance, um, you know, the steadfastness of the people undergoing this brutal catastrophe. Um, and I find that that has given me um, energy through this process. And I spent the first half of my life reporting on the intifadas in Palestine and um, when I came home and tried to readjust into normal life here, um, I switched doctors and my new doctor did like an intake, uh, like assessment of just like covering your life. And she was just kind of like, oh, so what did 10 years of covering war do to you? You must be affected by it. And I was like, no, I'm not affected by it at all. I just, I have nightmares. And, and she was like, oh, nightmares. And I was like, I don't count those as PTSD or I don't count those as um, being able to manage your life. I count what happens when you're awake managing it. And so I actually like in good faith, I went through the process of therapy to see if I had PTSD and if that was something that I could get control of in my life. And I did the process in good faith. And I found that the process wasn't all that helpful to me because a lot of the framework of it was especially um, sort of designed, especially in Canada, after kind of the war in Afghanistan. So it was really designed for soldiers, like individual soldiers who came home and had these terrible stories about the things that they did and the things that they watched. And so the whole therapy was kind of constructed around like, kind of saying it's not your fault or kind of saying like, who are the bigger players involved in this? And like, what if you learned about, um, you know, the worst day, like the therapy was really focused on like your worst day. 
which just as like a conflict journalist, you just can't really say like what your worst day was. It's more a matter of like hundreds of days piled on top of each other. Um, and so I just think at this point, I'm really good at that compartmentalizing. Um, and I didn't, I didn't see a lot of uh, upside in the therapy. Um, and so it's been really good to be an occasional member of tanky group therapy because uh, my normal inclination would be just to say, nah. But um, in this like parasocial relationship that we all have, it's super meaningful for me to see you guys and to talk to people because I think the like the thing that Sina said, like the way that I've protected myself from freaking out is that I just, I don't interact with anyone else. I, I'm so busy with work and talk to enough people on these screens that I feel like my parasocial relationships are are good. And um, I, I'm not, I'm afraid of going out. Like Justin says it all the time. Like I'm afraid of my friends saying the wrong thing and never being able to get that out of my head that in this crucial moment, even though that's not what's been the case in, in actual fact, I've been watching my friends who are less political and less invested are, are all of a sudden they're at these demonstrations constantly. And even though they know I'm not going to go because I'm working and they don't bother me with it or whatever, um, I'm watching them make signs and, and uh, change their signs every week. Cause they're like, that was, that was last week. Now there's a different um, and just really have an investment in this process that if um if Israel loses, I think there's a lot of people that are going to see that that nihilism's not useful and that we can win. And that if if Palestinians could build their own rockets out of uh, water pipes or like uh, like deep sea dive to get the ordnance out of a World War II ship uh, sunk off the coast of Gaza. We saw just the other day they took an unexploded bomb and reappropriated it and already used it against the Israelis. Like we're seeing these things that people are gonna talk about around campfires for generations to come. Um, and it's hard to imagine the world going back to October 6th. Um, and in, after 9-11, it felt like we knew that it wasn't gonna go back in a bad way. Um, and I, I just have this, this feeling that that the, that it's possible that it doesn't go back in a good way, and that we don't we don't accept the lies and the gaslighting, that we don't care like Justin said what people say about us. It's just a faster way of sorting out who's who's who. Like when they, like the Zionists put out these lists of like doctors who signed some statement or whatever, and you're just like, okay, well there's 150 great doctors, and now I have that list of doctors that just got fired or or whatever. Um, and so I think that there's a lot to be, um, to, to lot to hold on to amid the horror of this. And I, I just don't think that there's a shortcut to, to victory. Like, I don't think that there was a way the Palestinians were going to negotiate themselves out of this siege. Um, but it's possible that they're resisting their way out of this siege right now. And even their population is participating. It's not just the armed groups, because there's a steadfastness in the population as well that this suffering can't be in vain, that it can't be that we go back to being locked in a ghetto the day after. Um, and I think the population will look to the resistance and think, we know you can break us out of here. 
Um, we've seen you do it before and expect. So, so we expect more and maybe we can do that of each other too. Cause we know we have all mentally can endure this thing and still be productive. Um, and that strengthens us um, for, for this period, which I think people have rightly said. And I think Alex said too, like when you're, when the empire's dying, um, it's going to be super violent and our ability to um, to resist and keep it together and keep the struggles unified and not isolated, I think, is going to be a really important um, part of winning. So I just think that we should try try our best to keep at least a little bit of that um, in focus, not at the expense of, um, you know, bearing witness to the crimes. Um but, but yeah, I try to keep that that part. I, I, I didn't see this part when I was in the therapy. I didn't see this part where they break out. Like it was it was at the point where they were having demonstrations in Gaza and kids were walking towards the fence and getting sniped from the other side of the fence and losing their legs. And everything just felt like it was grim and impossible and just like massacres. And now we're seeing this like sophisticated, coordinated resistance using weapons that they built themselves. So they're not dependent. They're not going to run out of them because of lack of help from the outside. And they just did it all on their own. They don't need um, like a massive coalition, although they're they've found that they do have a coalition. And I, I just think like a lot of the world is never going back to the way that it was before. And so I hope that we don't get lost in despair um, while giving the appropriate space to mourn um, the devastating losses and, and even just in our personal lives, like the devastating loss of friends um, and waking up you know, like what Cena said about his phone is it's been 75 days of like, I don't know when to go to sleep because I don't feel comfortable going to sleep and having it be the six hours that somebody's writing to say they're, they're alive or not writing. And I wake up and they didn't write. And it's just like our phones are, yeah, this just this scene of, of horror and fear um fear like it's just i'm worried all a lot for my friends and um and i've been able to focus on that at the complete expense of my life in north america 100 so um i don't know how balanced that is but it's so far it's been effective i think yeah thank you john i think that the expansiveness to hold it all is part of Right. And then to come together and to sort of work through it, to trouble, it goes back to marking things in different ways, reorganizing, recalibrating these themes that came out today is that. And what I'll say is that there's a really stark misattunement in the therapeutic world at large that wants to sell itself as neutral. But the positions that is that are taken, like you're saying, are ones that pathologize the things that are actually really important. So you're talking about compartmentalization. We are very used to pop psychology and, and real psychologists saying that those things are unhealthy, a prescription of what's healthy and unhealthy. But as you're linking it, you're saying, actually, this compartmentalization allows me to hold on to the expansiveness of this all and perhaps, right, reorganize, recalibrate what it is that we're actually affectively invested in. So I'll use the example of the the prisoners that broke out, 
of prison with spoons, right? That overdetermined spoon turns into a weapon of liberation. And when they got taken back, right? Any psychologist that's, that's using the framework, a non-liberatory framework would look at that and be like, what a defeatist thing. Look, you just got back, just like we're hearing about Gaza. Well, you're going to be pummeled or whatever. And their words are the attunement, I think, that we need. And that also represents the expansiveness of feeling and what is what are the potentials of living, right? Which I'm really, fo- I've been really focused on the will to live and what does that mean? And that it, it does take contending with. And their answer after being re-imprisoned and tortured because of that was, you all are fools. You had it wrong. This wasn't about, right? We got to see Palestine. We saw Palestine and we broke out of the most formidable prison something you thought could never happen and that you will never take away from us, right? And for me, that's that's also sumud. So how do we transform these things that feel like fixtures, right? A lot of what you all have been saying is that there are things that felt like fixtures, even to those of us who are really tuned in to revolutionary potentials of the world. There are things that become fixtures that get ossified in certain ways. And here holding, doing this work together, also frees things up, right? I heard that, like, this is freeing, this is liberating, this feels like I'm never going to go back, all these sort of words that you all bring to, if I were to sort of bring it together and say, that is also a shaking free of the ossification, right, of this, and and the potentials, what happens when we stop looking at the spoon as just a spoon? What happens when we stop allowing the world to dictate the contours of our reality, especially as everything in front of us is sort of falling apart in terms of what's real or not. So does that, what what space does that open up? That doesn't mean there isn't psychic strain. I heard the word trauma a lot, rage, fear, and real grief about what does that mean in terms of what is actually lost in the process? I'll, I'll end my part with what my students from Gaza actually have said to me and this is what stays with me and when I think about the will to live is a reverberation of you know the price was already high so again it's a recalibration of like how are we seeing this the price was already high it was just not legible to a lot of people and for the first time in our lives we are actually thinking dreaming and believing that we will see Jerusalem that's holding all of it, right? Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you all. You're amazing, Laura. Thank you. Those guys are going to get out of prison again, though. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just to throw that in there. Yeah. <laughs> they There's going to be a prisoner exchange. <laughs> they knew. Oh, they yeah. knew. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'll, I'll see you.